Welcome to Public Service Podcasting, your inside look into the world of public service scholarship and practice. Hi, welcome to Public Service Podcasting. Uh, We've got an excellent transatlantic episode for you today. Um, So with me, uh, I've got my two co-hosts, Ian Elliott and Karen Bottom. You say hi. Hello. Hello, good evening. And we are delighted to have with us Bruce MacDonald, who we've managed to get right all the way across. Yeah. spanning time zones and political administrations and all sorts of massive differences. Um, So I'm just going to start off, Bruce, and say, um, would it be really good if you could just introduce yourself? I think many people will know you, um, but it's always nice to sort of maybe pick up on some of your background. And we'd be really interested in, you know, your research interests, how you've got to where you are and, you know, just um, kind of what's going on for you now. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. First, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Bruce McDonald. I'm an associate professor at NC State University in glorious Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, so a little unusual to be on this side of the microphone, but uh, we'll see how that goes. It's always awkward, isn't it, being on the other side of a desk <laughs> or a table or something? Yeah. Exactly. So my background's probably one of the more unusual in the field. And the background kind of explains why it is some of what I do. I'm originally from Tallahassee, Florida, but my parents became missionaries when I was nine. So we packed up, left nice sunny Florida, moved to the Soviet Union. And so I spent the 90s living in Soviet Union and Russia, traveling around the Soviet republics and eventually spending quite a bit of time in Central Africa. So a large part of my growing up experience was in governments who were either in some kind of a status of war or failure or having some kind of difficulty. So it's kind of always led to this interest in trying to figure out what a government needs to do to be able to kind of stay on top of things, keep its doors open and continue providing services. When I came back to the States for college, I actually majored in journalism. And rather than being a journalist, I did the crazy thing that I still don't fully understand how I made the transition, but I went and worked for Congress instead. So I spent a few years working for uh, one of the senators from Florida and then for one of the members from Florida doing his uh, appropriations on defense and agriculture, which kind of then also connects back the interest of what I do majority now, which is local government finance and budgeting type issues. I wanted to ask about that, Bruce, because... um... I, I know you had, I could see from from your, your online profile that you had worked in, in both the Senate and the House, and that must have been really quite in, informative. But um, so, I was, so I was really interested in, in just that experience, but also um, working with within the, the Democratic Party. I think it was Alan Boyd and Bob Graham who you were working with. Is that right? It was. Um, yeah. Um, and I mean, one, one of the challenges that I face sometimes writing about uh, the Scottish government is that people can assume that because I'm writing about a particular party or about a particular government that therefore I must be in some way supportive of that government or in some way biased. Um, Do do you face challenges around how people are perceiving your work based on the fact that you have worked within the or for the Democratic Party and has that that influenced your work in any way or how, how do you kind of how do you kind of manage that I guess is what I'm trying to say. So, I mean, that on its own is kind of a challenge, especially I live in a very Republican-oriented area. I do a lot of work with local governments who are typically a little bit more conservative, so leaning a little bit on the Republican side, Hmm. which you then kind of have to balance their perspective that they think that you're going to be a highly liberal Democrat trying to tell (laughs) the conservative Republicans what to do. So (laughs) it's always something that comes up, always something that... I kind of try and work through. Uh, Realistically, uh, Bob Graham as the senator was a Democrat, but he was fairly centrist in a lot of ways. Uh, He represented Florida, which is where I'm from. Alan Boyd was the congressman from the district where I 
well, more or less grew up where Tallahassee is, the second congressional district of Florida. And while he was a Democrat, he was what we call a blue dog Democrat. He was the co-chair <laughs> of the blue dog coalition. So if he had been from pretty much any other district, he would have been a Republican. He was okay. about as centrist as you could come. Yeah. So that kind of, well, oh, yes, I have a Democrat background. <laughs> it is fairly close to the centers I could possibly get, which really does kind of help on both sides. Um, but at the same time, I've also done work for Republicans before uh, as well. So that has kind of provided some balance. My focus yeah. is always, I don't care what party you are. I want to focus on what the work that is being yeah. done, what needs to be done so that we can make things better. And I guess having that practical experience as well is hugely useful when you're working in, in the classroom or doing research. It, it gives you that insider perspective on things, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And there's the difference between what we teach people and what actually happens. And I think a lot of people, until you have experienced that practical side, don't necessarily know kind of how to find that balance or know how to explain it or even necessarily know that it exists. And I think for me, this is one of the differences that is interesting between the US and the UK. Um, you guys have a much um, bigger tradition of... Um, I'm going to say more of, of political appointees in public service in that way. But because of that, as you said, the focus is on, you know, working for whoever to improve the quality of public services. Um, whereas our, um, our Secretary of State for Local Government or Minister for Local Government, Robert Jemrick, said uh, yesterday that having um, paid political special advisors was a major way of maintaining the neutrality of the civil service, which I <laughs> felt was a relatively unusual position to take. Well, I think even in the US, there's definitely a push or a desire to kind of get away from that professional public service that is independent of party. I hopefully don't think we will stray too far from it, but Definitely within the Trump administration over the past few months, we've seen even more of a kind of push to get away with that. But I think it does us fairly well. Hmm. So how then did you move from that? or And what was it that brought you into academia, Bruce? What was the impetus for moving into academia? So it's one of those kind of weird instances. I liked to write, so I always wanted a job that I could get kind of paid to write. Uh, I had originally kind of thought about going into being a journalist Turns out I was also graduating from my undergrad at the same point where the journalism industry was going through its own shakeup. And so I still wanted to do something that involved more writing than I was doing. So I kind of started to think, well, what else was I really interested in? And being part of the federal budget process, there's things that we were doing and advocating for in our processes that were there, but really didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but they were kind of how things had always been. And so when you ask questions of why is it this way, nobody had a good answer. And so I was like, well, that's kind of weird. That's kind of interesting. I wanted to understand more about it. And so I decided to go to grad school at the London School of Economics and work on my master's. And it was kind of during that year process of working towards the master's that kind of became, here's this topic that I'm interested in but it also allows me to do this other thing that I'm interested in. So basically allowed me to figure out how I can get paid to, I guess, do my hobby. And that, I guess that's always the dream, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's a work-life catastrophe, but as a, as how things go, it's a lot of fun. And as, as so during your time in, in academia, I know you've um, directed at least a couple of MPA programs. Is that right? I have. I was the MPA director for Indiana University South Bend's MPA program. And then yeah. when I came to NC State, they asked if I would do the directorship here as well. So I served as a term here at mm. NC State. Um, do you know, actually, before before I ask a bit more about that, um, so I'm, I'm intrigued to ask. Um, I, th I think you've got, have you got three master's degrees or something like that? Is that <laughs> I do. <laughs> It's just like this insane overachiever. Um, and one of those was at London School of Economics. So you've got a kind of, you've got a bit of a, a background in, in the UK as well. Um, how, was, how was your time at the LSC? I think you, you did, were you a research assistant there for a while as well? How, how I was. was. So I was in the Department of Economic History at the LSC, 
which if you think about kind of economics, it's really about kind of understanding the current situation. Economic history really isn't about history. It's about kind of adding the context of history to our economic understanding. Uh, so I spent a year and a half in the program and it was a lot of fun while I was there. I was the research assistant for Mary Morgan, who does a lot in terms of kind of understanding how models have changed over time. It's probably one of the craziest experiences of my life. Uh, the program accepted 65 students, and on the first day they announced they were going to graduate 10. Wow. Which... What? <laughs> That's an incentive. <laughs> it was a... It's not even allowed. <laughs> I don't know, but... Uh... In fairness, they didn't graduate 10. They graduated 12 because 10, 11, and 12 all had the same scores. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was number eight, so I really didn't care. <laughs> I think somewhere in Westminster, the Minister for Higher Education's ears have just started twitching. <laughs> he was probably number 13, though, to be fair. Yes. Um, <laughs> wow. Um, so to go from economic history, then, to public administration, that's bit of a sideways move isn't it uh a little bit but really not so much because when you think about uh economic history and you're kind of looking to understand what's going on in the economy part of that is not just the private sector but also the public sector so i was interested in things like the impact and the relationship between public policy and economic growth uh the relationship between defense spending and how the society was able to progress things that were very kind of public administration, economic kind of borderline topics. And so it was very much economic history, but still had that air of public administration. And I think it seems that um, a number of American uh, universities have a kind of more of a crossover between public affairs and public admin, whereas we see public affairs and public relations much more as a kind of journalistic endeavor rather than a more kind of societal endeavor does that does that um, seem to match your your view of it or have i got that a bit wrong way around so it's when we talk in the context of somebody working for government in a public affairs position it's very much kind of a pr communications type role which gets really confusing when you then talk about like a master's of public affairs program is very much more kind of like the MPA, but it has a little bit more diversity, a little bit more interdisciplinary nature to the program. It was one of, one of the things that I, I was also interested in in terms of the Journal of Public Affairs Education, because it, I think, initially was the Journal of Public Administration Education and then changed its name. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really know what the background to that was, and it seemed curious to me because, as Russ has just mentioned, um, when when we think about public affairs, certainly in the UK, it's it's very much around public relations, and it's something that communications professionals do, and it's actually it's it's seen as really quite a distinct subject from public administration. Um, so to to have a journal change from public administration to public affairs doesn't seem like a a natural move. Um, were were you involved in in that? shift or do you know what some of the background is or in that Bruce? So yeah, I, I do know the background which is kind of one of those stories of things merging over time as they develop. I think the title of public affairs definitely creates a lot of confusion for people. So the MPA program that I was the director of in Indiana was a master's of public affairs which it was functionally it was an MPA but by title it was public affairs and every year we probably had four or I'm thinking it was going to be that public relations type of degree just based on the name alone. The journal itself was the Journal of Public Administration Education. It was launched by George Fredrickson back in the mid-90s and was published in-house by him and his team at the University of Kansas. At some point around 97, the, the journal was only about two years old. But the decision came around that they were publishing and working on something that had a potential home for it within NASPA. So it was the Network of Schools of Public Affairs, Policy, and Administration, which are the kind of accrediting organization for MPA programs in the United States and in hmm. different parts of the world. And, and moving the journal from being fully done by 
a department at a university over to the organization, part of the agreement was that they were going to change the name to make it a little bit more synonymous with what NASPA itself as an organization does. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, that, that makes sense. It is one of those things that in the academic circles, when we talk about public affairs, it's kind of public administration with just a little bit more interdisciplinariness built in, but that's not quite the colloquial phrasing when we talk about it in practice, because it's kind of like in the UK, yeah. it's a little bit more of a communications PR type of phrasing. Yeah. But then when it came to writing your book about managing MPAs and you, you, you again phrased it as managing public affairs programs, uh, was that based on a similar rationale? So Will Hatcher, my co-editor, and I are both very kind of traditional public administrationists in that we like the title and phrasing of public administration because I do think mm -hmm. that the phrasing of public affairs kind of adds a little bit of confusion for potential students. I think it lessens the value of the degree by saying, oh, it's interdisciplinary because everybody likes to belong to a particular discipline. When we proposed the book and when we were going through the process with Rutledge, it was the editor at Rutledge who asked if we would phrase it as public affairs rather than administration, in part because it worked better with the series of books that they publish on public administration type topics in terms of kind of their catalog. And Rutledge is also the publisher for JPay, so that it would be a little bit more consistent with the journal as well. Okay, yeah. And if you were to summarize some of the key things around your your insights on managing MPA programs, what 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 were the kind of key lessons from that? Why? Uh, <laughs> hmm. These are the things that people need to know. <laughs> Man, uh, <laughs> you are allowed to say read the book. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so the book was kind of set up around both mine and Will's experience as being MPA directors. Our, my first time, and then when Will first became the director at Augusta, we were both kind of thrown into the position, not really knowing anything about what it takes to be an MPA director with the recruitment process, the accreditation process, or anything. So it really is kind of set up around what you need to know to kind of get started. So each chapter is kind of broken down by function. And then we have somebody who is a senior person in the field that specializes in that area kind of provide that framework. So there's a chapter on understanding the difference of degrees. So kind of the conversation between an MPA from the public administration, from the public affairs side, or a master's in nonprofit management, they're all related in some kind of way. And so there's a chapter that focuses on understanding the degrees of the field, what you have and what they each imply. There is a chapter on issues like recruitment. So how do you find students? How do you recruit and bring them in? You know, kind of trying to provide that base framework, that base understanding that people will need to have coming into that role as a newbie like we once were. Bruce, if I may, that's really fascinating. And um, I apologize, I've not read your book, but I look forward to it. And I just got a couple of questions. I suppose I'll bring in my most recent question I've just thought of first. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the students that um, you teach and recruit, their backgrounds, their interests, um, you know, how do they fit into the programme and you know, to what extent does the programme work around their needs? Or, or um, Just tell us a little bit about the students that are studying sure. your MPA. So at NC State and when I was at IU at South Bend, we would both kind of consider the programs a little bit more of a generalist style program. So our students come from a mm -hmm. wide variety of different fields. So we would have some who come in from agriculture or the hard sciences or social work or you know, even occasionally you know, political science, but that was kind of the minority of everything rather than the majority. And the focus was on going, well, what do you want to be able to do when you're done? And then how do we use the program to build up the degree around mm. getting you to that place? You know, no one job in government is going to be the same as somebody else's. So it really is kind of a how do we tailor the degree to the students rather than having a fairly rigid program that the students have mm -hmm. to fall into with the expectation that the jobs are going to adhere to that very narrow focus. Yeah, of course. That's fascinating. It's a really rich mm -hmm. mix of students that um, you referred to there. It really is. Um, 
was just wondering if you could, um, I'm, this may be in your book, no, so I, no I apologise, but uh, um, your thoughts about the future of teaching um, MPAs, the future of like kind of how MPAs um, connect, connect and relate to kind of maybe um, subjects in similar areas around public policy, public management. Where, where, how, where do you see MPAs sitting in future years? So I see the MPA is kind of maintaining its kind of same consistency of kind of very management focused of how do you be the leadership mm -hmm. for the organization. But I also kind of see the growth of these related degrees that exist often either within the same school or department, but are not quite the MPA. So it's the public affairs, masters of public policy, masters of civics and civic analytics, you know, these little kind of shoot off mm. degrees being the opportunity to really adjust it says okay if you want to go off and do this one area let's design the program that's going to meet this one need that we see that's going to start emerging within society yeah yes that's a good point because i mean one of the things that we see is um an increase across all countries an increasing number of services public services kind of delivered by private sector mm -hmm. organizations and we see that change taking place in the programs that are being delivered as well and at some point on my MPA, I'm expecting possibly, I hope, perhaps students that um, are working in the private sector, but delivering public services and wanting to find out much more about the sector that they're so heavily involved yeah. with. So I've definitely seen students over the years, either where they have the MBA or a master's of engineering, which is one that we often see where they are working in the private sector that has something to do with government. And they're realizing they're missing out that public concept or that public uniqueness and so something drives them mm -hmm. back and they get the mpa or at least take a few classes to kind of supplement that to give them an understanding yeah i think that's kind of probably one of the great opportunities in the us that we don't have so much is the opportunity for students to um pick modules from other programs so they can you know um so on, on our on our online mpa for example every module is fixed and um, I can see movement in the future towards allowing students to take options, perhaps on programmes, so they can delve into associated areas, but still keep their main public administration focus. Yeah, that's actually interesting that you have kind of the fixed aspect. There's a growing movement within programmes that I've seen the past couple of years here in the US, where the degrees themselves are becoming more fixed. So fewer elective hours, more core mm. hours. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we have introduced where I am at the University of Birmingham, we've introduced opportunities for students to come in and do one module, um, you know, kind of as what we call them, you know, micro-credential mm -hmm. module, which they can then use for accreditation. Um, but at the moment, um, the actual full degree is fixed. I think there's also an important point of distinction here um, that we are less blessed, I think, than uh, you guys over the pond in terms of um, MPAs are not very common at all. Um, mm. There weren't many of them and there are now far fewer. And I think that's to the detriment um, of the sector is one of the things that we're sort of quite concerned about. Um, and I remember being in a conversation um, with uh, Joyce and some of the others from the Public Admin Committee talking about the problems of, of public sector education uh, and talking about the word administration and was that a concern? Yeah. And, I, you know, I think my view was, you know, everyone's happy to take an MBA. You know, the problem with the, with the MPA is not administration, it's the word public, that we don't yeah. have the same regard for civic contribution, for careers in the public sector. We're actually quite dismissive in the media on television and you know I don't think we're as good as we used to be uh, universities are engaging with schools and I think that's a real shame oh I absolutely agree I think one of the problems we've even seen under the Trump administration the past few years is that perception of working in government is bad or you shouldn't be doing it and so we've seen decline the numbers of people who are interested in pursuing an MPA at the same time, we Gosh, have a large number of MPAs. Uh, I think within North Carolina, I think we have 11, I want to say, which is a fairly hefty bit. When I was in Indiana, we had somewhere right about there. And Indiana was a fairly small state population-wise. Within a 90-minute radius from my house in South Bend, you could get to about a dozen MPA programs in three different states. That's incredible. <laughs> how do you how do you perceive 
UK public administration, Bruce. I mean, you know, when it, it seems to us as though in the US it, it's still a, a huge subject. And, you know, you've just mentioned, you know, how many MPA programs are run in fairly small population um, areas. And here you'll see in the literature that we spend a lot of time talking and writing about the death of the subject or the demise of the subject or crisis in some way. Um, and that, that's been a, an ongoing kind of narrative for, for, for decades now. Of course, we're still around. It hasn't died yet. Um, and actually, it's, it's, you know, there's lots of great things happening. But I think we look at some envy with, you know, to the US and, and, Absolutely. and, and you've got. Certainly. Um, yeah. Um, so how do you perceive us, Bruce, in the UK? I think that's one of the problems we have is in the US, we are typically very US focused. We, you know, hearing the conversation, I know Ian, you and I have had it a couple of times about the kind of shift and the decline of public administration in the UK over the past few decades. When people think about public administration, think about the large involvement of public in government. I know I used to always think I was like, oh, that's what they do in the UK because the interaction between government and the, and the citizens is so large because the government, what it does is in so many more things than it is in the US. This is one of our real strengths in the UK is we invent a load of stuff and then we become rubbish at it sometimes. Uh, <clears throat> you might see cricket, soccer, many other sports and things. Um, it, it is a real, it is, as, as Ian said, you know, rumours of our demise have been greatly overstated. But nonetheless, um, I think if there were 11 MPA programmes still going in England, I'd be surprised. Mm. Oh, I think that's a real big shame. I think there's a need for it given the size of the uk given how many people you have and the extent and the involvement of the government yeah i think in the us we could definitely do a better job of learning and understanding about the state of public administration education in different countries because we just really have kind of been us focused you know we're happy to take everybody's research but we haven't really considered too much of what goes on elsewhere yeah i guess one of the things that i'm quite encouraged by is how us and and uk scholars are are i feel as though there there's more collaboration now than than ever perhaps i was listening uh, earlier on today I've, i must confess i've not finished listening to it yet but i was listening to your latest academics <laughs> of pa podcast with um john diamond and it's great to see the links that are being made between mm. jpa and tpa over here um and the work that you're doing together and it feels as though this is a real moment of, of, you know, bringing the public administration community together. Oh, absolutely. Mm. And, and in a and shameless plea, I will say that I'm sure all three of us would be ecstatic to come and work uh, in the US in any capacity <laughs> or format. So, See, I'll work in yeah. the library, I'm fine. Thank you, Russ, definitely. <laughs> See, I'm the opposite. I'd be like, if you could get a university in Scotland to hire me, I would move tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I was just in. thinking. Yeah. Ab oh, sorry, Russ. I was just, I was just thinking about, um, you know, kind of the, um, the, well, the the lack of MPA education over here compared to on the other side of the pond, and us, and and I think there's a lot to be said for the fact, that, of course, you have undergraduate degrees, we don't have you? Some, but not very many. Uh, public administration used to have a number of undergraduates back in the '50s, '60s, and '70s, and they kind of slowly started mm. dying off with the idea that you can have a richer experience as an MPA and a richer experience in your career by using your different field that you did from your undergraduate and adding mm -hmm. that management context to it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just wonder if there's a kind of a tradition there for it just having a bigger profile. I, I mean, maybe my theory's wrong, but I've always had a theory that because it's not an undergraduate degree and it tends to be something that some people come to when they've got you know, significant background of experience within the public sector, it just isn't so prominent. It's so often reliant on um, funding from within the sector as well. Whereas when it's been available at an undergraduate level, it's just something that's more in people's consciousness when they're thinking about what to study. Yeah, I think, you know, having that undergraduate experience, it puts it there, you see it as an option, you understand what it is a lot earlier. Whereas kind of as a MPA director, one of the things I would always have to experience was trying to explain what the degree was to people 
who are looking for graduate degrees. Uh-huh. And if you have that in there as an undergraduate program, even if they didn't major in it, they would at least probably be a little bit more aware of it than they would be coming to it after the fact. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I get oh, that a you, lot. Yeah. I get that a lot of people are like, public administration? What What's is that? that? What is that? I've never heard of that. Staplers. Staplers, yeah. <laughs> My parents still go, oh, you're an economist. And I'm like, well, not quite. Uh. <laughs> sort I, uh, I mentioned the, the academics of, of PA podcast, um, and that is a fantastic series. It's absolutely brilliant and um, probably, a, a, you know, fair to say a bit of an inspiration for us um, in, in doing this, Bruce. Shamelessly um, stolen. <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, how did that come about? How, how did you first come about developing that? What was the, what was the motivation for doing that? How did you get together? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Any tips would be good as well. Oh. So. <laughs> so, I had started listening to podcasts right after I graduated from the LSE. Back in 2006, the LSE ran a podcast where any public lecture that was given on campus was immediately posted. And so even though I was away, I could still take advantage of all the lectures and everything else that was going on. And I had always thought it'd be kind of fun to have one at some point, but never really knew mm. what to do it on. And I was like, well, even if I did one, no one's going to ever listen. So it's completely pointless. <laughs> <laughs> then Will Hatcher and I were doing our editorial board meeting. I don't even remember which editorial, where we were for that year. I want to say that was the year we were in Washington, D.C., where we were having the editorial board meeting, the vast majority of people were there in person, but we had some of our board were going to be attending elsewhere. And I had a studio quality mic that I had used for teaching online. And I, we brought it, we set it in the middle of the room, we turned it on and just kind of allowed everybody to, in pre-Zoom days, kind of call into the meeting through an online portal. And it worked you know, fairly well. And someone's like, well, why in the world do you have that mic? Do you have a podcast? And I was like, no, it'd be fun. I was like, but never really came up with a type, uh, topic or anything else for one. And so Will Hatcher and I just kind of started like joking about it. Like, yeah, we have this podcast. Where we're just going to sit around and ask people random questions. They're like, oh, you're going to talk about research? We're like, no, nah, no, nah. everything else but the research. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of liked the idea and took off with it. And we started thinking about, well, what would we call it? What would we do? And then we were like, well, you know, it's one thing to have a podcast. We felt that there needed to be a little bit more diversity than two white guys sitting around talking about stuff and pretending we were that important. And so we're like, well, we should get a third person to join us. And we're like, well, who's crazy enough to think that this is a good idea? And that's when we called Josie. She's like, yeah, why not? So we just kind of went with it. Brilliant. No idea where it would go or how it would turn out, but it's just kind of been just there and a thing. That's fantastic, and you've had some fantastic contributors over the for the series, um, some real and really really useful, um, you know, tips around writing and around mm. uh, reviewing um, was was a big theme in the most recent one. Really really useful things. So, so it was a fantastic resource for people. It's been a lot of fun. I think from my perspective, what I found the most useful has been everybody assumes that you know everybody else has everything together. So when you're looking at somebody and their kind of stack of research in their careers, that they have somehow managed to balance that work-life aspect that the rest of us are all horrible about. And I think it's been, at least for me, useful to kind of hear that one, everybody else doesn't have it together and they are probably floundering as much as the rest of us are. I think that's yeah, a really, really good point, yeah. Mm. Mm, that was something else I was going to actually ask you about, Bruce, because um, I noticed that one of your... One of your more recent um, publications had a, had a, a really neat um, subtitle of how we learned to stop working and find some balance, <laughs> which I thought was fantastic as a subtitle. Um, but I, at the same time, I think I think that was, was that this year? Yeah, I think it was this year. I think that's the same year where you've produced 17 <laughs> outputs. <laughs> Staggering. If that is balance. I, I am horrible at it. Uh, it's the downside of liking to write. And so for me, it's always been, I almost don't care what I'm writing about. Just let me write about something. 
the downside of that is at one point I realized I had said yes to way too many projects. And I looked at my project list at the beginning of the year and I had, I think it was 35 things on there that I had said yes to. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so the sitting at home, not really being able to travel or do anything else, it's been a year of going, okay, well, I obviously took on too much. How many of these can I get done so that I can one, not feel bad that I've left co-authors kind of on the lurch, but also so that I can start moving on to some of the other topics that I'm really interested in, but just haven't had time to yet. Oh, well, that leads me into uh, my problem. My next question is like kind of what are these topics that you're interested in and kind of where do you see your next stage of research going? Boy, um, so a, a lot of kind of what originally pulled me into public administration is the idea about defense spending and you know, its relationship uh -huh. to the government and societies around it. Uh, the problem that I found out fairly quickly is when I would submit to a PA journal a paper on defense, I would usually get desk rejected with the comment that nobody cares about defense spending and public administration, which was always a little bit confusing to me. And so I just kind <laughs> of would always push it off to the side and start working on other stuff. So there's been a couple mm -hmm. of projects in that realm that I would like to get back to. There's one that I've been working on started last spring and we were about to launch it, but then of course COVID happened. So we launched it this past fall and it was a kind of a little bit of a different project where we sent out a survey link to every budget and finance faculty in the U S that we could find. We sent it to mm -hmm. worked with the government finance officers association to send it to every budget uh, staff at the state and local level around the US and kind of inviting everybody to be involved. And it's a product that looks at the kind of research being done in budgeting and finance and says, well, everybody's kind of doing these things off on the side. Is that what the pra practitioners really need? You know, how do we line up with the questions that are actually going to be useful to them? Mm -hmm. You know, figure out kind of an agenda for budget and finance. And so we had 226 people respond back with what their top three research areas are, what they think those areas are. And we're in the process of kind of coding them down into consistent themes. And sometime late January or February, it'll go back out to all the people to create a ranking list of their top 10 themes that they think need to be worked on. And then we are translating that over into a paper that says, here's an agenda for budget and finance that has everybody who's involved in the ranking and the voting everybody had the opportunity to get feedback on the paper as well. So it'll have 226 co-authors on the paper that says, here's what we think oh, wow. is going to be a, a agenda that's going to address the needs, but also captures the interest in, of the academics along the way. Oh, that's fascinating. And, and how do you see the, uh, currently, how do you see the alignment, you know, between kind of academic focus in this area and actually what's happening in practice and what, and what the priorities and focus is within very, practice? Very, very different. So uh -huh. I think part of that comes back to, you know, my experience of having worked in government and I do a lot of stuff with local governments. I have some understanding of what kind of concerns and needs are for local governments, whereas a lot of people mm -hmm. don't quite have that same connection. They're very kind of academic wheelhouse focused. And so over time, I've definitely seen that there's a divergence between a lot of the questions that academics have with what the practitioners need or even what practitioners could mm -hmm. use. And so it's interesting to see those concerns from the practitioners start to come forward. And there are things that are very, very different. So we see a lot of questions and concerns from the practitioners on things like how do you do social equity and budgeting, which is something that really hasn't mm -hmm. been talked with or about in the budgeting and finance community, or how do you structure or change the structure of a budgeting office? So it's a very organizational management kind of question in the context of how do you adjust your structure to get a better outcome and a better process for that outcome. I really yeah, like yeah. that, that sense of, um, I suppose we, you might call it financial strategy and practice. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. They're kind of building it up from, from the reality. And I think that for me is one of the areas where the UK public administration, public management scene, for want of a better word, does have some real strengths. So, you know, the three of us, for example, have a background in public service of one type or another. Um, and actually, I think that's quite common 
mm-hmm. don't know if I could say quite common, reasonably common, perhaps, amongst yeah, the people that I know. So. Um, is mm-hmm. there a kind of permeability between um, academia and um, actually, you know, serving public service? There used to be a lot of connection between practitioners and people eventually going off and getting a PhD and becoming the academic. I think there's been a decline of that in recent years where I think of the people I went to grad school with, a couple had practitioner experience, but it was very few and kind of far between. But if we looked at the faculty that I had in my department who I was taking my classes from, almost all of them had that practitioner experience, which I think that practitioner experience isn't necessary, but it does help kind of provide a little bit extra context, helps to inform what Mm -hmm. you're going to do. I think as we have kind of created an expectation that once you finish your undergraduate, you immediately go do your master's and then you should immediately do the PhD. Mm-hmm. I think we have moved away from that, which isn't bad, but I think that does kind of create a responsibility from ourselves as academics to make sure that we're still meeting that practitioner need that keeps us as yeah. a field relevant, but also helps to do what we're there to do. That is solve the problems of the community. Yeah. And as an academic, I think I, I teach primarily people who were working full-time and then studying part-time um, through mm. their organizations on on what we sort of call apprenticeships here but actually most some That'd of them true. are quite yeah senior people and um, um, mm. yes all three of us are working in that sort of area and having what what I call kind of the war stories the ability to link it back to real life examples in practice of things that have gone well and gone wrong and stuff I I think is really important and you know you've just put your finger on something for me Bruce of a kind of I suppose a slight sense of an ease for my part that I I still have a lot of friends in local government which is where I grew up um, but I'm thinking am I close enough in touch with that now as an academic have I moved too far away and it, uh, it certainly made me think I should uh brush up some of my contacts and get back into it. Yeah, definitely. I think if we look at a lot of different fields, so political science, for instance, in the United States has in the American Political Science Association, a fellowship where you can go and serve as a fellow for Congress for a year. So even if you don't have a practitioner experience, there's an opportunity to get some practitioner experience that's going to inform your teaching, inform your research, which is fantastic. There are those kind of... We have similar schemes here. I'm sorry? Yeah. Yeah, and I was just thinking we we do have similar schemes yeah. over here yeah. where you can be a we have researcher schemes in House of Commons in the UK and I know there are a couple of different schemes in the Scottish Parliament as well where researchers, academic researchers can go in. Um, yeah, but maybe I don't know they're they're maybe more well established in in the US. Yeah, we have a few that would do kind of public administration practitioners, but the problem is is they are there but because of funding issues over the years they don't necessarily offer them on any kind of consistent basis and we are a field that doesn't have that same recognition of the value of taking time away to go and serve as a practitioner Mm. before coming Mm. back to an academic so we have the opportunity but it's kind of a constrained opportunity at best. Yeah, not seeing that kind of bounce backwards and forwards. Um, I've, I've got some contacts in Japan and they seem to have a, a much more permeable barrier between practice and academia and that people would um, go from practice to get a PhD but then would go back, which I do think is different to, to us here. That's an in, a really interesting um, way of doing things, though. That would be very interesting to look into further. Yeah. We do have people who will go yeah. and do a, a PhD for the intent of going back into practice. Mm. Uh, even in my own department, a number of our mm. PhD students over the past few years have done that. And, and would those be PhDs, Bruce, or would they be professional doctorates? Do you have DPAs as well? My department only has a PhD. Uh, there's a few DPAs around the U.S., and I'll admit the traditionalist in me, I guess it's one of the downsides of the LSE that they kind of pounded what degrees are for and you know proper titles and everything else. Gold standard. The, you know, the DPA is very much that practitioner degree. And yeah. mm-hmm. you know, I love doing a dissertation. Um, I love doing the PhD, but that dissertation aspect isn't really that necessary for somebody who's going off into practice. Perhaps that time could be spent mm-hmm. in a different way or in a better way. And so I think that mm-hmm. using the degrees a little bit more effectively in that regards kind of does help for people going back into practice 
but at the same time, there really aren't that many DPA programs. Most of them that were in the U.S. Uh, transitioned into PhDs sometime in the last couple decades. Yeah, I'm just thinking about um, the PhD students in our department, and I think that the majority of them definitely are people that have come from practice and are fully intending on going back into practice. It's a curious thing, isn't it? It or, is. You know, you, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if you have that same um, distinction in in, Brit, in in business. You know, I think. You know, no, no, I think probably DBAs not. DBAs are so commonplace now. I think I think back to my time in local government. I met one person who had a PhD and he never used his title and was a bit embarrassed when somebody brought it up. Um, and I, I, you know, this is one of my concerns a bit, I think, that felt like there was a bit of an almost an anti-intellectual bias that, you know, that those mm. are not real. It's just, you know, fancy book learning. It doesn't really have any relevance to practice and that's absolutely the divide I think that we're all you know working across and trying to cross oh boy there's a contemporary issue isn't there yeah (laughs) I think that's one of the things that I like the most is talking to practitioners who start to um, relate their practice to theory and theory to practice oh absolutely I think one of the guys I went to grad school with uh, his name is Joe Vonisek he has retired now I think for the second or third time he was a budget director for a county in Florida and in his retirement decided that he wanted to understand the theory behind what he had been doing for decades. And so he went and got his PhD and taught for a couple of years before finally retiring again. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating to hear that constant practitioner side of here's why we do it and kind of the importance or the meaning behind it instead of just going, oh, here's what they do. <laughs> It's that move that I call the, the gamekeeper turned poacher, um, sort of the opposite way around to what we normally see. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. I wanted to pick up on something, Bruce, around your, your most recent research, just um, that, that survey that you were doing, which sounds phenomenal. Um, and I was just curious, does that link into your your book on fiscal health of US cities? Is that is that going to move into that project or is your new book based on other research? So there similar topics but different areas so a lot of the research that i do kind of independently is about the fiscal health or the financial condition of local governments or kind of really i guess any government where you think about the governments have resources but how they use them can be done in any variety of ways but ultimately their choice of how they use their resources also means or has different implications for the government so you can make a choice that's going to kind of lead you down to the path where you have no resources left. Yeah. yeah. When I heard about the book, I, I was just immediately fascinated by this idea of fiscal health, because I think that might mean different things to different people. How, how have you defined that term fiscal health? How do you see you know, a, a, a local US state being healthy? So it, it is kind of one of those terms that adds a little bit of confusion in part, I think the accounting literature has talked about fiscal health for about 125, 130 years here in the U.S., and it goes back and forth between uh, fiscal health and financial condition, uh, both of which mean the same thing. It just kind of depends on who's writing at that point in time, and it's really about the idea of financial sufficiency. Do you have the capacity to pay your bills when they come due? Okay, yeah. Yeah. A story related to that, if you'll indulge me just a second. <clears throat> when I was working in local government, uh, so working for a, a municipal authority, and we had an away day um, where we took the, the directors and then all the assistant directors away to kind of, you know, plan strategy and do that sort of thing. Um, and I was one of the assistant directors, um, and I'd help plan it. And we'd done this, I suppose it's a bit cheesy, but we'd called it like speed dating with one of the chief officers. So we'd all sit in mixed groups with one of the directors, and you'd have, you know, 10 minutes to ask them what's going on your area and we'd ring a bell and you'd move around to the next group so um it was really good it's really nice sort of practice it was a bit cheesy but it's good um so we ended up on the table with our finance director so the finance director also looked after the pension scheme for the sort of region of i don't know maybe a million people something like that so it's quite a big pension scheme and one of the other assistant directors said does the pension scheme have an ethical investment policy uh, and the finance director said, yes, yes, it does. Yes, it does. And somebody said, what What do you mean by an ethical investment policy? And I said, well, that would mean that, you know, we wouldn't choose as the pension scheme wouldn't choose to invest in tobacco or arms companies or, you know, companies that had factories that were unsafe and used child labor, that sort of thing. And the finance director said, oh, yeah, we do that. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
I'm sorry, what, what do you want? He said, yeah, yeah, we do those things. And I said, well, how is that an ethical investment policy? And he said, well, we have you know, an ethical responsibility to our shareholders to maximise the return on our investments. Wow. Um, and I said, right, well, I, you know, I really think we should get into like drugs and prostitution because I've heard that the margins are amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was a, it was this unbelievably different interpretation of what we might mean by it. Now, this is a man who's responsible for, you know, a couple of billion. Um, was was staggering. That is amazing. That's that's a good story. I like that. Russ has many good stories. <laughs> I, I do. I do. <laughs> oh boy. Um, one of the other hats that you have, Bruce, is editor, as we mentioned earlier, of JP. I think you've been editor for a couple of years now on that. During that time, it seems to have really taken off um, the impact factor, the number of citations, everything seems to have really shot through the roof. Um, is that is that a fair summary of, of the performance of JP over the last couple of years and how much of a role have you, would you, would you, would you take credit for all of that or how, where, how has that come about? Uh, I think I'll give all the credit to Will uh, for, for that. <laughs> uh, I think... Did you both do you you both joined it at the same time as co-editors? We, we did. It's one of those things. Yeah. I was literally in the south of France at a champagne bar, um, getting ready to as you do. <laughs> head... yeah. That's a nice flex. I like oh, it. Exactly. It's just your usual weekend, Bruce. You're, yeah. <laughs> uh, getting ready to head back to the U.S. and I saw my email where there was a call for the editorship, and I was like, "Well, that could be fun." I was like, "There's a value to." focusing more on teaching and education, kind of the overall understanding of what we do in terms of running our programs and everything else. And I was like, well, it would be fun. I had spent the previous couple of years w working with the Journal of Public and Nonprofit Affairs, helping to launch it and kind of start it going. And not wanting to take on a journal fully by myself at that point, I sent Will a message and was like, hey, do you have time next week to talk? I have a crazy idea. And we got on the phone and started talking about it. And we both kind of had the same thing of, it's a tremendously important topic that is largely ignored. And part of the reason it's largely ignored, I think has been not necessarily how the research was done, but how it was presented back to everybody. And so we put in the proposal mm -hmm. with a couple ideas of what we wanted to do. And to our surprise, NASPA uh, picked us and allowed us to kind of go with it. The journal at the time was in the process of transitioning from being self-published out of NASPA over to Taylor and Francis as the publisher, which has helped quite a bit. Uh, yeah. There's other things in terms of you know the management side of the journal that we changed, which have helped to kind of rebuild it quite a bit. Everything from you know how we treat reviewers, how do we get reviewers, starting off with a list of topics of papers that we wanted and then going after people to find those topics to kind of help promote the field mm -hmm. of scholarship of teaching and learning so that could then feed back into the journal. Mm -hmm. Good. I suppose yeah. no I, I was just going to say you um, you said when you when you set out your bid you know you had you and you had a, a particular kind of ideas as to how you might like the journal to develop and I was just going to ask you a little bit maybe explore that a little bit more what your what your plans were and how they've materialized what direction do you feel the journal's gone sure. in? Sure. So kind of the first big thing that we were thinking of is scholarship of teaching and learning stuff, at least in the U.S., has had a bad rap for quite a while. Mm -hmm. uh, so we wanted to make sure that anything that went through the journal, anything that we published was going to be treated fairly, that it but also kind of went through that review process so that it had a, not really a rigid, but a, a strong foundation as a journal. But then we wanted people to be able to mm -hmm. kind of know what was going on with the journal itself. So Part of that was bringing on a social media editor who was going to be very integral at relaying what the ideas were, what the articles are, kind of connecting back, kind of giving any and all promotion that we can to everything that's being published so that people could see that it was being done, understand what was being done, and kind of allow that to build upon itself and to start informing more and more things that are going on. We also wanted to do... Uh, book reviews, which I know everybody says they want to do book reviews, but there's a lot of books that are going or being published, you know, thousands and thousands every day that we wanted to be able to say, you know, here are the ones that are going to have a meaning or an impact or some kind of utility 
for your classroom. So it's not just a summary of the book, but how does it connect back uh -huh. so that what's being published also then has a utility around it. Oh, that's fantastic. That sounds like a number of resources that, you know, mm -hmm. the journal offers. That's great. And then the last thing that we really wanted to do was be able to have a case study section that provides uh -huh. case studies that can actually be utilized directly in the classroom in some kind of consistent format. So the journal have been publishing case studies through, through excuse me, the journal have been publishing case studies for a number of years. There were a number of different places that you could go to get some online related to public administration, but they were all kind of a hodgepodge of formats. They weren't fairly consistent. It was hard to kind of find them, hard to keep up with them. They weren't being updated. And so there was nothing that says, here's what a public administration case study looks like. And so part of our approach was then going, well, if we want to do case studies, we need to establish what the case study looks like, kind of borrowing a lot over mm -hmm. what the Harvard Business Review does for their case studies, bring that into the public yeah. administration realm and then build up a section around that concept. Yeah, it's it's got so many fantastic resources in it, and it, mm -hmm. it really is a terrific journal to read. There's a lot of really interesting research, but also those case studies are so useful. Um, yeah. You know, you, you know, uh, yeah, it, it's 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 great. Although I must pick up on what you said earlier, because I think I think your definition of fun <laughs> may be different to <laughs> slightly, <laughs> slightly. Yep. Yeah. I'll, I'll admit to that. <laughs> Definitely, I'll admit to that. I might just. Oh, but your idea of fun definitely benefits the rest of us. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what's and what's fun? Academically rigorous fun. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. And now you've got um, you're working on a project I think between JPA and TPA. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Or I may be wrong. <laughs> of is it a tra trade secret now? That's it. It is a secret. And I was like, I looked at the calendar and I'm like, no, I have to wait till March 1st to actually be able to say anything on that one. Ah, uh, okay. It, it so is we have, a... You're holding us till We March can edit that. Yeah. Well, wow. you can also leave it in so that everybody goes, oh, look, wait, what happens March 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 1 p.m. Okay. Uh, Greenwich Mean Time. There's going to be a yeah. joint you... announcement on both of our, our accounts. Amazing. Yeah, let's get that in our diaries right now. So first of March, yeah. well, that's something to look forward to. That and the vaccine. Also, you must come back and talk <laughs> I mean, to us about you it. Know, I guess you know people might debate as to which one is more important, but you know I, I would like to think that both things are going to feature in the in the headlines come the uh -huh. come come the near future. So that's that's exciting. Good. Um, awesome. Cool. Um, yeah. So. Uh, obviously more plans for JPay, um, but you're also um, now um, the, the new co-editor of Public Administration International Quarterly as well. Uh, yes. That's not embargoed <laughs> either, is it? You're very hesitant. Well, no, no, the International Quarterly, I was like, wait, is that the same it, journal that I'm thinking Is it? <laughs> there's a number of journals called public administration with something there and yeah. there's almost 200 yeah. pa journals out there in the field so yeah. i was like wait is that the same one that i'm the editor of? Is that a different one? yeah and that one has a very a very long um history in the uk um having been established within um uh the the royal uh, institute for public administration i think initially mm -hmm. Um, and has um, yeah has been a, a very solid part of the British public administration landscape um, really since its inception I think almost a hundred years ago now. Um, mm -hmm. So how what are your plans for that one then? What what what's going to happen um, to that journal then once you've once you've taken the reins? So there's a couple things that are happening almost right away. Uh, the first is as a discipline, public administration has a lot of diversity in terms of who's in the field and the kind of research that we do. So if you think about you know, male, female, uh, race, country, subfield, there's a lot of diversity going on and it takes work and effort for a journal to kind of stay up on top of that and kind of keep up with the changes that have been happening. So if you look at the journal right now in December, there is 51 members of the editorial board, only 12 are women, it's primarily uh, Western European, North American orientation. And part of that is changing so that the editorial board represents who's actually in the field. So we're expanding it to 54 people, but that becomes a 50-50 male-female split 
picking up people of different races, picking up different subfields, intentionally going after people from different countries so that we have a good close representation with who's in the field and what's actually going on with the field. That's really so, nice. Yeah, it is. I think it's something that is needed. I think it's something that some journals put focus and work into. I think probably not enough put as much work into it as they should. Uh, along with the kind of diversification of the, uh, uh, excuse me, along with the diversification of the editorial board, the editorial team itself is also relatively diverse. We have somebody from North America, someone from South America, Europe, Asia, and then Australia, uh, trying to also connect back with people in the field who are from the continent of Africa, but that's taking a little bit of extra work and will come around eventually. But we are definitely trying to make that connection that says, here's who the field is and allow us to represent the field rather than a section of the field that might not have had the diversity that it needed to have. And uh, I, I know some of the people who've been involved in the um, academic women and public admin network in Australia. And again, you know, a number of um, really excellent scholars uh, in Australia, and they seem to have made, I think, some progress in trying to um just come up with things that you need to do to promote women for which you could also read as you said you know race religion creed um disability whatever um and i think it does have to start at the top in terms of that leadership of the journal and i think what is really pleasing to hear is that there is that expression of leadership right up front um and it's perhaps a more ethical, if I can borrow that word again, <laughs> a, approach to journal management as opposed to saying, well, we must be good because we reject 96% of people mm. who send us anything. You know, that's not a marker of quality per se for me. Yeah. Right. Even then, if you're rejecting 96% or whatever it ends up being, if you are going down to who you choose as your reviewers, there's a lot of research that shows that reviewers who are male tend to be highly or tend to highly rate articles that presumed to be written by males, either based off a topic or word choice, whereas they're going to rate articles lower by females. Same kind of thing goes around uh, racial issues. So it's not just about your editorial team. It's also about how do you choose reviewers that are going to give you the research that is also going to be great research that represents that same diversity. Uh, that's a great point and I suppose something that um, we can follow on from that is just to ask you again in, in how much in line do you think the publishing profession is with your aspirations for the journal? Probably more than I think people realize so uh -huh. when Wiley first asked me I if I would take on the editorship it's like well you know, let me think about it and I came back and I was like here's what I would do and you know, there's yeah. a couple other things besides the diversity aspect, but the diversity aspect was the big thing. And literally before I had it out of my mouth, the managing production editor team, whatever her exact role is, I've never quite figured out the title of it. But uh, the person who oversees the journal for Wiley uh, responded back, you know, absolutely. The problem they have is not that they're against that kind of approach. It's that they have a hard time getting journals mm -hmm. to actually do it in real terms. So as long as yeah. I was willing to actually put in the effort and do the work to ensure that happens, they will give whatever leeway, whatever benefit that they possibly can to help the journal get there. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and again, it, it kind of aligns to teaching as well. So if I may just diverge sure. for a second, um, to what extent do you feel that um, public administration education kind of sits within these kind of de decolonized lines? Or is that an area that needs a lot of work as well, do you think? I think it needs work. I think it's getting there in terms of we're becoming more aware of it. I think a lot of what has happened in kind of the social realm in the US in the past few, well, I guess, largely this year has helped kind of elevate some of that conversation and made uh -huh. people more aware. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably the same case over here as well. Kind of more discussions are going on about this kind of thing. I, I do know it's hard or it's at least it's going to be very slow to always kind of make those changes. So if you think... Mm -hmm. Not least because of the paperwork that's involved, <laughs> sorry. Well, <laughs> even if it's not the paperwork, say you want to have you know, more diversity in your faculty you then have to be able to get the faculty lines yeah. and mm. you know the one thing would be i guess you could go around and start asking some faculty to quit and go off 
and then intentionally place them with somebody of you know more diversity but that's also not necessarily mm-hmm. the best choice and so some of these changes might no. take you know quite a while to bring about but then you also have to mm-hmm. bring more diversity into the field I yeah. saw somebody on Twitter, which is my source for most of the scurrilous news in the world, um, say that they were tired of seeing the term diversity higher and they wanted to bring in the term continuity higher. Um, <laughs> so you might say, well, Russ has, uh, Russ has recruited another Russ. He, you know, he's just a continuity hire. Um, and I thought, in, as with lots of these things, when somebody flips something that way, you kind of go, oh, yeah. Um, there's a really good point there. Um, and I heard I heard Wolfgang Drexler um, talk about his research into alternative paradigms of public administration, whether that be Confucian or Islamic public administration. And it was, for me, you know, as a middle-class white guy, it was kind of mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that is... I don't remember who made the, the tweet about the continuity hire but i remember seeing that the other day and kind of chuckling to myself because it's a very yeah. it's a valid point mm. uh you know saying it's a diversity hire you know also at the same time yeah you're trying to bring diversity in but it almost kind of makes it sound like the only reason you're hiring that person is because of their diversity mm-hmm. which should never be the case whatsoever yeah and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you're only recruiting people with you know 400 four-star papers well what a surprise they tend out to be white men quite a lot of the time i wonder why that is is there some kind of <laughs> structural reason why that might be perpetuating that you know and it it, it just it ignores the problem right. through you know right. snark which i think goes back to the publishing side of things there's things as a journal that we can do to help promote or help kind of level that balance everything from having yeah the balance of our journals in terms of the leadership and our teams, but also to the review side. So there is research that says that when reviewers are kind of more harsh or mean or critical, it tends to push uh, minorities out of the field. It tends to push women out of the field. So you end up with the people who are going to be left over as white men. And part of that is definitely something that shouldn't happen. It's definitely something that we can address by saying, here's, kind of the standard of what we're willing to accept. Yes, you can be critical of an article, but you should do so in a way that is going to be constructive feedback rather than kind of internet trolling feedback. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This this could be a nine-hour record-breaking podcast, but fortunately uh, both Ian and Karen will shout at me if I don't start to wrap it up a little bit. And I know you've been incredibly generous with your time, Bruce, and your will have more exciting things to be going and doing. I'm sure possibly more fun things to be doing in this <laughs> bizarre oh. interpretation. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It's been a lot of fun. It's um, It's been an absolute pleasure. I could go on forever and I will stop. Mm-hmm. So just to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, we look forward to seeing where Academics of PA goes and who knows, there may even be opportunities for us to continue our conversation. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much, and you, we will see you next time on Public Service Podcasting. I mean, we won't see you, but you'll hear us. It doesn't really make sense, does it? Anyway, <laughs> thank, thank you. Goodbye. You've been listening to Public Service Podcasting with Russ Glennon, Ian Elliott, and Karen Botty.